Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Vince Citro, and I will be your host for today's podcast. We're here today with David Beck, a founding member of Beck Redden, a Houston-based law firm. David is a former president of the American College of Trial Lawyers and a former president of the College's Foundation. He's tried cases for clients like ExxonMobil, Cameron International Corporation, which manufactured the blowout preventer and the Gulf oil spill, and others. He was appointed by former U.S. Supreme Court Justice William Rehnquist to sit on the Standing Committee on Rules of Practice and Procedure, a position that he was reappointed to by Chief Justice John Roberts. He has received the award from the American Inns of Court for Professionalism in the Fifth Circuit and recently received the Joe Reynolds Award from the College Fellows in Texas. David's also received the award for the Anti-Defamation League's Jurisprudence for Exceptional Commitment to Equality, Justice, Fairness, and Community Service. David, thank you for spending some time with me today. My pleasure. So I want to start with your origin story. We're we're in a, a period where comic books, whether it's DC or Marvel, are very popular and we're learning about all the superheroes' origin stories. So what's yours? What led you to the practice of law? Well, that's a great question, and I don't, I'm not sure I really know the answer to that question. I've just always known I wanted to be a courtroom lawyer. I have no idea whether it was watching Perry Mason on television and watching him win 56 straight cases against the district attorney or whether there's some subliminal message that somehow I picked up over the years. But the fact of the matter is, I always knew I wanted to be a courtroom lawyer. And, you know, that's what I set out to do. Have you uh, kept up with Perry's win record? (laughs) I think he's still undefeated. (laughs) I think he lost one to Hamilton Berger, only one. (laughs) Where'd you go to college and and why did you decide on that particular place? My dad worked for Gulf Oil and he got transferred to Port Arthur, Texas when I was 15. And so I went to high, finished high school in Port Arthur and, you know, my dad worked at a refinery. And so he, my parents couldn't afford to send me to any school, any college. And so basically the only alternative I had was to go to Lamar University, which was 12 miles away. I would hitchhike every morning, go to class, hitchhike back in the afternoon to my job. And then eventually after three years, I graduated and went on to law school. So you, you hitchhiked each way, held down a job, and did a four-year degree in three years. That's essentially correct. But, you know, it's like anything. When, when you have to do something, you do it. That's incredible. So what were the, the building blocks that you got in college that helped you succeed in law school? I, I think there were a couple of things. Number one, I, I majored in government and history, and the head of the department kind of took me under his wing. And, you know, made certain that if there was an opportunity for me to edit something that he was working on and I could get uh, paid to some extent, he did things like that to really help me along. And that's probably the primary thing. And then he also stressed, as did another faculty member, the importance of making good grades. And so that's why, you know, I, I studied hard and, you know, was a dean's honor student. But you, you eventually went to law school. What law school did you go to and why? I went to the University of Texas Law School in Austin because 
although there, at the time there were eight law schools in Texas, <clears throat> in my view, the University of Texas Law School was far and away the best law school, and it certainly had the best reputation. It was the biggest law school in the States. Part of my reasoning was that if you go there, you're going to meet colleagues that are going to practice elsewhere in the state of Texas, which means that you're going to have friends throughout the whole state that once you graduate, start practicing law. It was for those two reasons that I decided to go to the University of Texas Law School. Did you do any of the extracurriculars while in law school? Moot court, trial team, any of those? Yeah, I did. I was working at a law firm and I worked in the law school library. So I didn't have a lot of time for law review, but I did gravitate towards moot court because I thought that that was similar to what I wanted to do, which was be an in a courtroom lawyer. And so basically, I participated in the two moot court competitions that the law school had. I'm talking about national competitions. I just gravitated towards them and worked hard in those competitions. And fortunately, my team did reasonably well. For those listeners who might not know what a moot court team is, that, if I have it correct, is where you are mock acting or portraying as if you're lawyers in an appellate setting, very different than the Perry Mason trial setting. Do I have that right? That is absolutely correct. And you're basically <clears throat> given a problem and then you have to write a brief depending on which side you're on, either an appellant's brief, an appellee's brief, or if it's a criminal case, petitioner or respondent. But it really teaches you, you know, how to analyze a legal issue, how to frame arguments. And then, of course, the actual competitions themselves forces you to get up and articulate whatever arguments that you've developed. It's similar to a trial competition, but also materially different. So you feel like you want to be Perry Mason. You do moot court and you get a feel for what it's like in the courtroom. Did that, did that convince you uh, that, that the courtroom is where you wanted to be or, or did it kind of dissuade you? I mean, obviously, I think I know the answer. No, it, it absolutely convinced me that that's exactly what I wanted to do. And, and um, so as a consequence, you know, during the interview period, I mean, I only sought out law firms that I thought had great trial sections, trial lawyers, because I knew that's what I wanted to do. And to that point, you started your career with Fulbright Jaworski. Is that correct? That is correct. And uh, Jaworski, if I my homework was right, is a, also a former president of the American College of Trial Lawyers. He was appointed as the second special prosecutor during the Watergate scandal shortly after the Saturday night massacre. Yeah, he was one of several partners that I interviewed with, and it was probably one of the most memorable interviews I ever had because Colonel Jaworski, as we called him, because of his, he was a colonel in World War II and, and participated in the Nuremberg trials. But Colonel Jaworski just looked at me in his office and just asked me point blank, he said, are you any good? And, you know, I could have probably prepared an answer, but it, that question just came out of the blue and my response basically was, Colonel Jaworski, I really am, and you're going to make me even better. And he seemed to like that question because he gave me a job offer, and <laughs> I went to the law, went with the law firm. It, it, that's definitely a sign that you were destined to be a trial lawyer with that kind of answer in an interview. And Fulbright Jaworski, that went on to, to be Norton, Rose, and Fulbright, right? That's correct. So you get to the firm. You've, you've told the colonel... I'm good enough and you're going to make me better. What did they, what did they start you doing when you, you got to the firm? 
Well, they, they put me in what is called the insurance defense trial section. There were actually two litigation sections. One was commercial and the other one was insurance defense. And they put me in insurance defense, which in hindsight was probably the best or the better course for me, because what that meant was that I was given, at one point, I had like 240 insurance defense cases, which meant I was getting over to the courthouse every week, you know, picking juries, trying cases, getting verdicts, uh, which, of course, that helped me develop my trial skills and um, and made me confident uh, uh, in handling matters in the courtroom. So, and, and I remained in that section for probably about, I would say, eight years. And then the uh, firm moved me into the commercial litigation area. And that's where I was throughout the remainder of my career at the firm. When you were trying those cases earlier in your career, were you trying them by yourself or with somebody else at the firm? Well, initially, I would try them with somebody else in the firm, uh, typically a partner. Uh, and I would second chair the partner. And, and eventually, you know, they would say, OK, well, you don't need anybody else uh, I had to go with you. You can go by yourself. And so that uh, was how it developed over time. When you're trying cases, even by yourself, I mean, all of us that do this know that we're constantly working to improve. So when you're in there by yourself, how are you honing your skills as a trial lawyer, learning what you could be doing better? Well, frankly, I think you develop your skills as a trial lawyer, uh, not only by doing it, but by doing it against the best lawyers. You know, you you can always try a case against somebody who maybe is not as experienced or, you know, unprepared and so on. But but I think you're really tested and your skills are really honed to a, a fine point when you're trying a case against somebody who's really good, really talented and is well prepared. Looking back at those younger years when you're you're trying these cases by yourself against good lawyers, do you? Have any career-defining moments that shaped you that you could share with the audience? Well, there's one in particular. One of the partners I worked with at the firm was like General Patton. I mean, he was tough. He viewed the other side as the enemy. In the courtroom, you didn't talk to the other lawyer, you know, because he or she was the enemy. And one particular Thursday, he came into my office and gave me a file, and he said, look, this is a file with a lawyer who is probably one of the best plaintiff's lawyers in Houston. And I think you're ready for him. And he said, but let me tell you what's going to happen. He said, you're going to be assigned a trial. The judge is going to ask the lawyers, have you all talked? And he's going to say, your honor, we haven't. We, may we use your jury room? And the judge will, of course, say yes. And he said, you're going to go back in that jury room. And he's going to try to bully you into paying a, 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 an amount of money in settlement that the case does not warrant. And he said, when that happens, he said, I am not asking you, I am telling you to stick your finger in his face and say, Mr. Sowens, I've got a better case than you. I'm a better lawyer than you. So let's just go see what the jury's going to do. And I went, wow, what did you do? That's not my style. (laughs) That was his style. It was not my style. So basically what I told him was, I just said, look, you're much more experienced than I am. I need to get trial experience, so let's just go try this lawsuit. And, he, of course, he, 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 he didn't know how to handle that because nobody had ever given him that reason for trying a lawsuit before. But that's what we did, and we tried it for like four days, and then the case eventually settled. 
the point was he kept coming lower and lower and lower in his demand because I just kept saying the same thing. I just need more trial experience. So that, that's interesting. You know, we just did an interview with Mark Mulcazy who said you can hate the other guy's case, but you can't hate the other guy. Exactly. Exactly. So you brought up an important point there I want to touch on for a second, and that was you, you didn't adopt a style in dealing with this other lawyer that that wasn't you. You stayed true to your own style. And of course, as lawyers, at least I find, I can't be Rick Dean. I can't be Susan Harriman. I can't be David Beck. How important is it for you to maintain your style in the courtroom to the judge and to the jury during trial? Trial, in my view, is like a morality play. And you've got to maintain your integrity in the courtroom. The jury watches you. The judge watches you. And you've got to make certain that you're not doing anything to somehow create the impression that you're unprofessional, that you're not a good lawyer, that you're not prepared, and so on and so forth. I think it is absolutely critical that you be yourself because a jury will absolutely sense a phony. And if they sense that you're being phony, you're not being yourself, you're going to get punished for it. And what's worse, your client's probably going to get punished for it. It's very important to be yourself. You practiced law for a while with Fulbright and Jaworski. How long were you at the firm? I was at the firm probably about 25 years. And what'd you do after that? Well, I've always had kind of an entrepreneurial bent, and I thought about leaving earlier than I did, but kept saying no because the, the partners I worked with were still there, and I respected them and, and felt that I owed them an awful lot. But as time went on, one retired and passed away, another one he retired and my mentors were gone. And so I thought if I was ever going to uh, try to do something from an entrepreneurial nature, I had to do it now. That's when five of us left Fulbright and went across the street and started our own law firm. And, and that's what Beck Redden is today. That is correct. You're not very typical of a lot of lawyers. It seems like you've had a, a long career, but really only two jobs. That's, that's exactly right. So if you would walk our listeners through how you went going about starting your own firm. I mean, you're at a large law firm, you're comfortable, you've been there for a long period of time and have seniority. Walk us through sort of how you, you opened up your own shop. Well, first of all, let, let me say it was the most difficult decision I'd ever made in my life. I mean, I, I was a senior partner at the firm and you know my financial future, I think, was reasonably secure. But again, it, it was that entrepreneurial uh, feeling that I had to satisfy. And so when I decided to leave, I, I told the firm, I said, look, I'm going to have to call the clients I'm working with, but I want somebody else from the firm on every one of those calls because I want to make sure that you all think I did it right, that I didn't, didn't do anything to try to take clients from the firm. And obviously it's the client's decision, but I want them to know that I didn't do anything to encourage them to go with me. And so that's what I did. And we always had, I always had somebody on the call. And I think that as a consequence, the firm respected that. And when they had problems, I would get the call to represent them. And I've continued to get referrals from lawyers in that firm, which I think is an indication that we did it right. Did you get a lot of those clients to go with you? Yes, most of them did. And one of them was Exxon, because uh, I'd been representing, representing Exxon for years. And when I left, you know, fortunately, they, they essentially came with me. 
that doesn't mean they didn't give Fulbright some work too, but, but I, I sure ended up continuing to represent them in many respects. How is it that you got Exxon to go? Well, Exxon, in my experience, is, is a very different company. And that is that they don't hire law firms like many uh, companies do. They hire lawyers so that, you know, they may hire a litigator from one firm. They may hire a labor lawyer from another firm, a corporate securities lawyer from another firm. And fortunately, I was on their go-to lawyers list so that whenever they had a potential litigation matter or a potential trial, I would typically get a call, and which I was, of course, very grateful for. David, as I was doing my homework on you, I realized that the American College and the Texas Young Lawyers Association sponsor the national trial competition. And for listeners who don't know, that's where law students in a mock trial program will compete all over the country in their regions and then come to Texas for a national competition that you're really the father of that competition. Do I have that right? That's essentially correct. Um, it, it was interesting because, as we discussed earlier, um, when I was in law school, we had moot court, but no mock trial competition. And I thought that was a real deficiency. And so when I got out into practice, uh, I was a member of the what we called then the, the Texas Junior Bar. It's now the Young Lawyers Association. I suggested that the Young Lawyers Association create a trial competition. And, you know, the board thought it was a good idea, but as is typically the case in these type situations, they said, fine, you go do it. And, you know, I set about trying to do it, uh, to create it. And so we eventually did. How'd you get to the law schools to buy into this newfound thing? Well, I was blessed in the sense that one of my partners at Fulbright, Kraft Eidman, was president of the American College of Trial Lawyers. And I office right next to him. So I just went into his office and told him what I wanted to do and, and how I thought it was a good idea and it would help develop, help law students develop their skills and interests in the trial area. And would it be possible to get support from the American College of Trial Lawyers? And he said, well, let me find out. And he eventually came back to me and said, yeah, the American College will support that. And then the college eventually created the National Trial Competition, which the final rounds are always held in Texas because that's the way we set it up. Uh, um, and then also went up to uh, Harvard and talked to uh, Professor Bob Keaton, who was head of the, the litigation group at, uh, uh, at Harvard Law School, and got his support. And we got the ABA litigation to support it. And with all that support, we went to the law schools and said, look, here's what we've got. We're going to set it up. And, you know, we want you to participate. So the first year was a rising success with regional competitions all over the country. That's fantastic. And if I am, my memory is correct, the Powell Medallion is awarded to the winners in their region. And it is my medallion is one of the few things I have from law school in my office. And there are a number of friends of mine who also competed years before and after me that have the Powell Medallion in their office. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, we've touched on the college a little bit. So I, I want to ask, what does the college mean to you? Well, when I was a, uh, an associate uh, at Fulbright, all I ever heard from Leon Jaworski and Kraft Eidman and other that were fellow, who were fellow about the college and what a preeminent and prestigious organization it was and, 
and how you don't join it, you don't apply for it, you more or less have to be tapped. And you're tapped only if your peers and others believe that, you know, you are a person of unimpeachable integrity and you're also, you also possess exceptional trial skills. I heard about it and I always thought, you know, if I'm ever lucky enough or fortunate enough to become a fellow of the college, that would be kind of the culmination of a, a, a professional career. And so when, when Kraft Eidman walked into my office and said, congratulations, uh, you're going to be a fellow of the American College. I mean, I cannot tell you how excited uh, I was uh, when he gave me that message. Um, in fact, I teared up uh, when he told me that. Why should younger lawyers care about the college? Why should they strive to uh, obtain becoming fellows? I guess it, it, if you want to be the best and you want to be among the best, then the college ought to be something that you aspire to. Anybody can join an organization. Anybody can apply for multiple groups. But very few groups go through the investigation that is performed before somebody is approved for fellowship in the college. I always remember that when I attended the orientation lunch at the college and my wife was sitting next to me and they went through an explanation of all the the various steps that had to go through before I was approved. I mean, she looked at me like, how in the world did you ever get in this group? <laughs> my uh, wife did the exact same thing. <laughs> but it's, if you want to be the best, you always want to be among the best. So you not only became a fellow, you rose through the organization and became both the president of the college and a president of the college's foundation. Explain to our listeners, if you will, the difference between the college and the foundation. Well, the foundation, as, as the name suggests, is really an entity that tries to solicit funds that can be used for various pro bono programs and efforts. And through the, the generosity of fellows of the college, the foundation has raised millions of dollars and that money has been used for various pro bono programs throughout the country. It's done an awful lot of really good work. And then the college itself is totally different. I mean, it, it doesn't go out and raise money. Basically, it has a lot of educational programs. It has a lot of committees that do a lot of good work, such as the Federal Advisory Committee, which helps advise on changes, potential changes to the federal rules we mentioned the National Trial Competition Committee. There are a number of committees that really do a lot of good work to try to help the profession and try to help the administration of justice. You're doing all of this while still maintaining an active caseload in trying cases. I want to ask you about your, your time trying cases. How do you stay sane during these long multi-district litigation trials or these patent or antitrust trials that you've had? I've always said, and I always tell our young lawyers, that you, there's a lot of pressure involved in doing trial work. You have to find an outlet for yourself. And everybody has to choose that outlet themselves. Nobody can choose it for you. Whether it's your family that's your outlet, whether it's jogging that's your outlet, whether it's reading that's your outlet, teaching, whatever it may be, you've got to find something to, to kind of help relieve the pressure you're going to have. 
And so I've, you know, I jogged for years, run marathons, and that was my outlet, plus my family. And, you know, frankly, some of my colleagues, you know, they chose a different course. And, you know, some of them were drinking a lot and so on and so forth, which, as you might expect, uh, did not have outstanding and beneficial consequences. So there's a healthy debate among trial lawyers, and I'm curious where you come out on this. Do you script out your jury addresses, directs, and crosses? Do you use an outline, or do you just get up and shoot from the hip when you are ready to go? I have never been a shoot-from-the-hip trial lawyer. With respect to opening statement, jury argument, cross-examination of witnesses, even direct examination of witnesses, I will write it out. I will not follow it, but I've always learned from an early uh, age as a young lawyer that when I write out an opening statement, I remember it. And up to give the opening, I'll probably have an outline in front of me. I will not have the, the, the script, if you will, but I will remember it. And I will, I will remember where to plug it in and where to plug in various points. And I've done the same thing with closing. And with respect to cross-examination of witnesses, I do follow an outline, a very detailed outline for cross-examination of witnesses, because I don't want to overlook anything. What advice would you give to newly minted lawyers who want to become trial lawyers? We've often talked about how trials are getting harder and harder to get, fewer and fewer year in, year out. What advice do you give a new lawyer? I think the advice I would give the young lawyers is do whatever you can to get in the courtroom, whether it is arguing a motion, sitting second or third chair in a trial, taking a pro bono case on and arguing the pro bono case yourself. The point is go around the office where you practice and, and pester people. I understand you're going to trial next week. Can I go with you? And if, if, if the answer is yes, then you need to start lobbying, well, can I take a witness? But you need to be proactive because otherwise with the vanishing trial, uh, it's gonna get more and more difficult to get that experience. So you're a partner, you've got a young lawyer coming to tell you they want to do trial work and they wanna take a witness. What are the intangible skills that you're looking for in that lawyer to decide whether you're gonna give the lawyer a chance? That's a great question. I, I guess what I'm looking for is somebody with common sense. You know, you can be the most brilliant person in the world if you don't have the judgment about when to do certain things in the courtroom, then you're going to have a very difficult time being a successful trial lawyer. I look for somebody who's got what I believe is good judgment, and I look for somebody who's willing to work and work hard. And as I tell the lawyers that work with me, look, if, if you think that the trial practice is a nine to five job, you're dreaming. You're in the wrong, you're in the wrong profession. You may need to work on a Saturday. You may need to work on a Sunday if that's what it takes to be successful. You may go play golf on a Thursday if you're not going to trial and there's nothing urgent. But you've got to be willing to work hard and do whatever's necessary to represent your clients successfully. How do you handle the client expectations? I mean, you've had some large clients. How do you handle telling them, I've got an associate that's come to me and wants to have a role in his or her first trial, and I've decided to let him do it? 
I usually at, at the outset with a client say, look, I, I know that, that attorney's fees are, are important to you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to supervise this case. I will take the most important depositions. I will try your lawsuit front chair, but I will involve other lawyers in my firm and even legal assistants to perform tasks which I think they can reasonably perform at a lower hourly rate. That benefits you, and frankly, it benefits me because it frees me up to uh, take the expert's deposition, take the key witness's depositions, and so on. So I set their expectation up pretty early in the, in the representation. And once I do that, then they're comfortable with that because I'll introduce them to an associate and give them a little bit of history about the, the associate's background, and they feel comfortable because they know I'm willing to recommend those people. I want to switch to a topic, some unfiltered advice. Uh, first, I want to talk about younger lawyers, those in the first 10 to 15 years of practice. What would you tell them? The first 10 to 15 years, stay humble uh, and, and make sure that you think in the back of your head, am I really as good as I think I am? Because uh, a lot of times after you've been practicing 10 to 15 years, uh, a lot of lawyers start feeling pretty good about themselves. And so my advice to them is stay humble. And, and because you may not be as good as you think you are. There's, you know, the practice of law is a learning process. It's a continual learning process. And don't forget that. Let's take a, the second group, seasoned lawyers. We're going to put them into 20 to 25 years in practice. What advice would you give them? The advice I would give them is keep learning, you know, keep up with what's happening. You know, for example, with electronic evidence, how do you get that into evidence? How do you authenticate it? If you're trying to use somebody's website, data generated by an app, mobile phone or hard drive, getting that into evidence can pose a real challenge. So you need to stay abreast of developments. And it may mean that you need to teach. It may mean you need to write. It may mean you need to appear at CLE programs, because if you do all of those things, you're continuing to learn. And that's what it's all about, in my view. You just can't sit back and rest on your laurels thinking, you know, I'm a pretty good trial lawyer, and I can just coast at this point. No, you can't just coast. It's a continual learning process, and you've got to be mindful of that. I want to take lawyers in your strata of practice, that you've been doing it for a minute, and what's the advice you would give your, your colleagues, your peers, your equals? You know, it, it's pretty similar to the one that I just answered, which is that, that, look, just stay relevant. And a lot of times lawyers, you know, decide that, well, they'd rather go play golf than try a lawsuit. That's fine. But don't hold yourself out as a trial lawyer that's continuing to try lawsuits if that's not what you're doing. You know, be frank with yourself and make sure you know what you want to do and what you want to continue to do. And once you once you answer that question, then stay the course. David, you strike me as someone who clearly likes trying lawsuits. I, I know you teach as well at the law school. How important is mentorship in our profession today? I think it's critical today because you've got so many lawyers that are either practicing by themselves are with two and three lawyer firms, and they don't have a mentor. They don't have a Leon Jaworski or a Kraft Eidman 
that I can walk into their office and say, look, I've got this, I've got this expert, you know, I don't know how to handle this expert and have them give you some really good, sharp advice. I think it's important for fellows of the college, for example, to be willing to mentor these young lawyers, not just in your firm, but lawyers outside your firm. You know, I got a call from a friend of my daughter. My daughter's a lawyer and her friend's a lawyer. And she had this lawsuit that she was having trouble with a particular lawyer. And she says, do you know him? And I said, yes, I do. And she says, what do you recommend? I mentored her about how to handle this lawyer in the case. But she didn't have anybody. She was just practicing by herself. I think it's critical that that we, we help mentor younger lawyers. Let's take this from the perspective of the younger lawyer. Where's an organization or place that you recommend they go find a mentor? Well, you have a lot of the bar associations that have mentor programs. I know the Houston Bar Association does. The State Bar of Texas does. It's up to the lawyer who is looking for a mentor to be proactive to try to find somebody out there who's willing to to visit with them and talk to them a little bit. And once you establish a mentor relationship, you know, it's not a one-off. If you mentor somebody and provide help to them, they're going to call you back and you ought to you ought to welcome that because mentoring is critical for these young lawyers who have no one to call upon for advice both professional and from an ethical perspective the texas state committee uh, of the college has something called the joe reynolds award which is named after an exceptional texas trial lawyer who was a highly decorated us marine and that was recently awarded to you the award uh, is given someone whose career has exemplified the qualities of ethics and professionalism embodied in the college's code of trial and pretrial conduct, and whose actions and accomplishments manifest a lifetime commitment to achieving the administration of justice through service in the legal profession, the judiciary, government, or public service. So if you would, tell us why you were chosen for that award and what that means to you. Well, first of all, I was shocked when I received the award. It was a complete surprise and was uh, well announced at a recent uh, meeting of the a retreat of the uh, fellows of the Texas, or excuse me, the, the Texas fellows. So it was a complete shock to me. I knew Joe Reynolds. Um, Joe Reynolds, as you so aptly stated, was really one of the few Marines who served at the Marine Corps' two major battles, Iwo Jima uh, and Chosin Reservoir. And I will tell you a very simple, short anecdote. I was at lunch with Joe and another friend of ours. And my friend said to Joe, he said, tell David about Iwo Jima. And he said, I I really don't want to. And he's no, Joe, tell him. And he told me. And as he told the story, he was in a foxhole and it was a Japanese machine gun that was raking the area. And so his, he, was just, he was just holding on to the sand just to stay in this shell hole he was in. And a few minutes later, this young PFC falls in the hole, just scared to death. And Joe tells him, keep your head down. There's a machine gun out there. And he does. And after about 20 minutes, this young Marine looks at Joe and says, Lieutenant, Lieutenant, look, look. And they pointed, he pointed up. And that was the time they were raising the flag on Mount Sarabachi. That, that was, you know, as you know, an iconic moment in the Marine Corps history. 
receiving that award named after Joe is probably one of the greatest honors of my life. Oh, that's amazing. I, I can tell you uh, just from doing my background search on you, it, it was well-deserved and uh, I, I can't think of a more deserving person. So you've, you've done big trials. You've, you've had big clients. You've done big things like creating the national mock trial competition as you look back on your career, what's the, what's the life lesson you want to pass on to our listeners? I was always taught by my mother. She had two phrases that she used repeatedly. Number one was never forget where you came from, which is something that I've always taken to heart. And the second thing was, whatever you do, be good at it. And she said, yeah, I don't care whatever you do in life, whether you're a carpenter, a plumber, work at the refinery, whatever it is, just be good at it. And I think those are two messages that you can give to almost anybody in any profession. But I find it certainly apt in the legal profession. Well, David, it's been my privilege and honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much for spending some time with me so that we could do this. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Trial Tested is a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. Help us share these inspiring episodes about life and law by reviewing our podcast on your favorite listening app. Subscribe today so that you don't miss our next release. Thank you for listening.